This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I am fired up this morning to begin a new series through the Gospel of Luke. And if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first four verses uh, this morning together. It's been a habit of ours as a family for about the last 12 years uh, to have family pictures taken every November. We just decided there was at least one time a year that we needed to get dressed up and smile and get everybody all together in one place and capture the moment of how everyone looks at that different stage and uh, so we've done that for about 12 years now, every November. How this usually works is uh, quite a ways in advance. We start planning out, well, we, I don't do anything, uh, plan out the outfits and get everybody all uh, working together. We have to emotionally prepare all of our children for this. So we talk about it a few days in advance and uh, certainly the night before and the morning of, get everybody really emotionally, physically, spiritually prepared. And then uh, someone comes, uh, a lady from Atlanta that's a friend of ours, and she comes to our house and we usually just run around in the backyard and and she takes pictures. Now, you've had this happen before. What she does is take about a thousand pictures. She just clicks and clicks and clicks. And then she goes home and she looks through all of those pictures and she comes up with the 50 or 75 that she thinks are the best. And then the best of the best, she then edits and does a bunch with and sends those to us. And the best of the best of the best is the one that makes it on the Christmas card. So you will think that we always look just like that. You, you all do the same thing. I'm not the only hypocrite. So this is just what we do. Now, the girl who takes our pictures, she's great, and one of the things that she does, because she just kind of, uh, she's a friend of our family's, is she'll often send us a bunch of pictures that she knows aren't going to make it on the Christmas card just because they're humorous. And uh, it's basically different stages of this two-hour process. And as I was looking through the pictures this year, I couldn't help but to just look at uh, my son, my four-year-old son, Josiah, and think about his stages throughout the, the photo shoot. Uh, we did prepare him significantly for this. We got him dressed up. And I'll have to say this year, he started as a team player. He was good. He was ready to go. He knew what was required of him. Uh, he got in for the first few minutes and he smiled and he cuddled and he just did great. So we had a great few minutes. And then he transitioned a little bit to more of a, a happy, playful uh, attitude. So he starts running a little bit and having fun and uh, playing with different things, a little bit harder to get him in the picture, but at least he's, he's still happy. Uh, then he transitions to the, I just, I just need a little alone time phase in which he realizes that we've been just a little too close for too long. And, uh, everybody's kind of just on me and in my space. And so he just runs off still doing fine and, uh, goes and sits by the Creek and just kind of gives this picture that he just doesn't want to be bothered. Then we enter into the just flailing stage where I'm limp. I'm not, you can pick me up and I'm not going to do anything. I refuse. I will not smile for any more pictures. I, I just, I'm, you know, I can't do it. And then the final stage is you can take as many pictures as you want, but I'm done. I'm out of here. And he just walks off and he goes, we don't know where he goes, but he's done. Now, if you want to get a good picture of Josiah and who he really is, our Christmas card, albeit cute, 
is not the greatest picture of Josiah. That if you really want to understand him, you've got to look through all of these pictures and see the many sides of this kid. It's the same kid. He's a great kid. You just have to see a lot of portraits to see all sides of him. Now, when you open up the New Testament, you have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we wonder oftentimes, why do we have four accounts of the life of Jesus? The reason is simple. It's all the same Jesus with four different portraits. Written by four different men with different personalities, writing to different audiences, all overseen by the power, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So we are ensured that these are not the opinions of man, but the very word of God. Yet still, as God is doing right now, speaking his word through a personality, God wrote his inspired word through personalities, different men to different audiences, giving us four portraits of the same Jesus, every one of them distinct, never contradicting, but all of them distinct. Toward the end of last year, as I was praying about what to preach in 2020 and what direction we needed to go, I think about a lot of things. I think about where we've been and changing from Old Testament to New Testament, and I pray about where we are and pray about where God wants to take us. And as I was praying through that last year, I was captured by the Gospel of Luke. I could not shake the sense that what God wanted to do in us right now, God could do best from this gospel. Because in this gospel, Jesus is seen as the exalted one. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is King and Lord and Savior. He is God in the flesh, highly exalted. Yet, he is also, in the gospel of Luke, fully human and deeply compassionate. In the Gospel of Luke, he is the the friend of sinners. He is the friend especially of the poor and the unexpected and the marginalized. There is no one who emphasizes more the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of prayer. No one talks more about salvation and no one talks more about joy than Luke does. And when I think what it is that I've been praying for God to stir in our heart, which is a love for people, particularly the marginalized, a desire for our church to be a place of incredible joy, a place in which we are seeing people saved, when we are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, where there is authentic Christ-exalting and kingdom-coming prayer, I can't imagine a better place for us to spend time than in the Gospel of Luke. And so this morning... We begin a 10-month journey through Luke. 10 months, Lord willing. And I'm going to approach this book differently than I do most books. Most books, I will start at the beginning and go to the end. We've done that with a few books so far in the last couple of years. But Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, having over 1,100 verses. And to start at the beginning and walk through would take at least a couple of years. But I want to be honoring to the distinct nature of Luke. And so here's what we're going to do. Throughout the year, Lord willing, we're going to do five different series. We're going to begin in a series on knowing Jesus, in which we're going to see Jesus as Luke portrays him. Then we're going to talk about the ministry of Jesus, the different things that uh, Luke highlights that Jesus did, his healing ministry, his teaching ministry, his deliverance ministry, his ministry of meal sharing, which Jesus was often eating with tax collectors and sinners and those things. We're going to talk about the teaching of Jesus. There's 18 unique parables only given to us in Luke. We're going to talk about encounters of Jesus that are found nowhere else, like Martha and Mary, the widows whose son was raised from the dead, Zacchaeus, all of these unique encounters. 
And then, Lord willing, we'll end with a series on following Jesus. And the goal of every sermon in every one of these series is going to be the same. It's our desire to see Jesus as Luke wants us to see him. To understand who Luke is and why he's writing and the audience to whom he's writing to in hopes that at the end of this, we might be captured and changed by this portrait of Jesus Christ. So I want to begin with a bit of an introduction on why this matters so much to us, why a 10-month study of the life of Jesus matters and how it can affect us even today. And I want to do that from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So if you're there and looking along with me, say amen. And before I read, let me say one other thing. Many of you have asked about this. You know, we've done these before, these little ESV journals. This is the text I'm preaching for, text on one side, blanks on the other. Many of you already have those. If you don't, they're available there. If you just kind of want to keep this and follow in and keep all of your notes together, uh, we'd love for you to do that. But let's read together uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Listen to these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things clearly for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, at the very beginning, we're introduced to two people. One is Theophilus and the other is Luke. You say, well, I don't see Luke's name. Well, Luke never mentions his name in his two volumes. He writes Luke and he writes Acts, two volumes really of one work of the ministry Jesus began to do on earth and the ministry Jesus in the book of Acts continues to do while exalted in heaven. He never mentions his name, but we know from many different sources that Luke wrote this and he does say in verse three, it seemed good to me that I should put together this account. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Luke. Luke was not an apostle. He was not one of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose that walked with Jesus. Luke never met Jesus. Luke was highly educated. He was a doctor. You will see from this book, he is a historian. He is a careful and a detailed thinker. He seems to have a very inquisitive nature and a very keen and sharp mind. He's probably from Philippi, and somewhere in the second missionary journey, he met Paul. And as Paul often did, as he met people he was impressed with along the way, he would bring those men with him. And so as he did with Titus, and as he did with Timothy, and as he did with Barnabas and Mark and many others along the way, Luke began to be a companion with Paul through his second missionary journey and almost till the end of his life, which means that He had not only spent all of this time with Paul, but had been closely associated with the apostles, with all of those who were eyewitnesses of what Jesus did from the very beginning. He is a prolific writer. You know that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Great attention to detail. But then there's Theophilus. That word Theophilus means lover of God. Theophilus is only mentioned twice, in the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts, because in both places he says, Luke says, I'm writing this to you, Theophilus, and then again, I'm writing this to you. But through the writings, we can piece a few things together, and this really matters for us. Theophilus is a believer. He's a Gentile. He's most likely a man of prominence. 
But yet, even though he might appear to have everything all together, there seems to be an uncertainty and insecurity in Theophilus' heart in regards to his relationship with Jesus. Have you ever felt a bit insecure and have a lack of confidence and stability in your relationship with Jesus Christ? This is a common thing with the Gentiles in the first century, and here's why. Because they would hear the gospel, but they would know that Jesus was a Jew. And oftentimes they would wonder if this gospel was actually for them too or just for the Jews. And then you would have some Jews who had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in him but were misinformed and begin to teach to Gentiles that, yes, you can be a believer, but you must kind of embrace all of the Old Testament regulations. And Paul spent his entire ministry fighting this. He went to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and gathered all the apostles together just to make sure they understand that a Gentile can be saved by faith alone apart from any works that anyone has ever had to do. But yet still, you have insecure, uncertain Gentiles. They're just not quite positive if this is for them. And Theophilus is feeling that. He's asking that question. He believed, but he needed assurance and clarity and certainty and confidence. And that's why Luke wrote him, to give him that type of confidence. Now, I want you to notice some key words in the first couple of verses. And one of the reasons I love for you to have a little book like this is so you can circle words and highlight words. So if you have a pen or a mascara or anything, there are a few words I want you to notice. In verse 1, I want you to underline or circle the word narrative. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, this word really matters. Because the word narrative means a story. So Luke is writing a story. You understand that this book is not an anthology of a bunch of different unrelated books, but this book from beginning to end is one united story. There's a story that began in the Garden of Eden when God created humanity to live in his presence, to have perfect fellowship with him. A story that that that, uh, intimacy with God was broken because of sin. And from that moment on, God begins to restore people back into right relationship with him through the promise of a king. Who we will find out as King Jesus Christ. And that story is going to continue all the way until the end when we're taking back to the new heavens and the new earth. Once again in Eden, experiencing intimacy with the Lord. This is one united story in which God is writing. And what Luke says is, I'm telling you a story. But look at what he says. He says, it's a story, a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished means things that have already been fulfilled. So Luke's saying, I want to write you about things that have already been fulfilled. So Luke's desire is to help us to understand all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament, that God has been writing a story in which Jesus is the center. And the coming of Jesus is the culmination of thousands of promises that a Messiah is going to come. And what Luke is saying is this, by telling you the story of Jesus, I'm continuing the story that God has written since creation. So know that this is not a new story. It's the continuation of God's story found in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke wants to make sure we understand that when we come to Luke, we're coming this far into the story and we're stopping or starting right here. And this is not something new. All of this has been promises of what Luke is going to show us has been fulfilled. He says, I'm telling you a story, a narrative of things that have been accomplished. 
And it's a story that's been told many times before. He says in verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now, you see that phrase where it says those, so he's talking about a group of people from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. In Acts chapter 1, which Luke also wrote, he gives us some details of what happens as the early church is waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that they had to do is replace Judas, who had betrayed Jesus and had taken his life. And they give what it means to be an apostle. So there's certain qualifications to be an apostle. It is someone who was there at the baptism of Jesus, walked with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, and was there and saw Jesus ascended. And what Luke is saying is that this story of Jesus has been told by those apostles, look at what it says, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and they were ministers of the word, and those who saw it from the very beginning to the very end, from the coming of Jesus in his public ministry, all the way till his ascension to the right hand of the Father, I have heard this story from these eyewitnesses who experienced every bit of this. So Luke is saying this is, this is not a new story. It's a story that has been told, but a story that Luke feels like he needs to tell again. You see, he says in verse 3, but it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You see, Luke felt that there was still a need for another story. One that told about the same Jesus, but told it from a little bit of a different angle for a little bit of a different purpose. Do you know Luke is the only Gentile that's ever written a book of the Bible? He wrote Luke and Acts. No other Gentiles wrote books of the Bible. Do you know he's writing to a Gentile, Theophilus, who is a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but just is not quite certain about his faith, that is not confident in his faith? And as Luke was hearing the accounts and most likely had already read the Gospel of Mark, he realized that there was a need for another book telling us about Jesus, but giving us a portrait of one who specifically has come for those who feel marginalized and out of place and wonder if the gospel is for them. He gives us another account, a different portrait of Jesus. Now, look at how he approached this, and that's what it tells us in verse 3. And there's five very important key words in this verse to tell us the way that he approached this writing. It says, it seemed good to me, here it is, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. Those words there, having followed, are words that mean to follow something carefully, to look at something closely, to examine something with great detail. So Luke says, I've looked at this very closely. I've gotten very intimate with this. And he says, I have followed this faithfully and carefully. And I have followed, look at what he says next, all things. The entire story from beginning to end. I've tried to get every possible detail I can about the beginning and about the end. He did not record everything for us. But he certainly investigated everything from the beginning to the end. He followed all things, look at that next word, closely carefully, with with precision, with great attention to detail. When you really get deep in the study of Luke, you'll notice that Luke tells stories that other people tells, but he gives us details that no one else gives us. He gives us names and places and moments and all kinds of things because Luke is a detailed writer, because he has listened carefully. 
And nothing he says conflicts with anything else. He just seems to add more detail because of the closeness to which he looked at it. And he looked at it and followed it closely. Look at what it says next. For some time past, from the very beginning. Have you noticed that no one tells us about the early life of Jesus but Luke? No one records about Zechariah and Elizabeth in the temple and the birth of John the Baptist. No one tells us about Mary meeting the angel. No one tells us about the visit with Elizabeth that Mary has. No one else tells us about Jesus in the temple. Luke is saying that I've looked at this from the very beginning, and what I'm giving you in this book, last of all, is an orderly account. I'm writing to you an orderly account. Not meaning that everything Luke says is in direct sequential order, but meaning that Luke has put this together for a specific purpose. It is carefully crafted by the mind of Luke and overseen by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Luke wants you to know that I've put these things in a very specific order. I'm building a case here. And this has been carefully ordered to accomplish the purpose. And it is amazing when you start to read it about all of the unique things in the gospel of Luke. Just think about the first couple of chapters. I mentioned this just a second ago. But think about Zechariah in the temple. Here is a priest that is going into the temple, and it's only he and the Lord. And while he is there, an angel comes and visits him and says that his wife, who is of old age, is going to have a child. And there's no one there hearing this, and he doesn't believe it, so he's made mute, and he goes out and has to make hand signals to describe that his wife is going to have a baby in her old age, and you can't imagine what that was all like. And then it goes on to the story of Mary, who is visited by an angel, and it's just her and the angel, and it records exactly what the angel said and exactly how she felt. And then it tells us about this visit she has with Elizabeth, and it gives us this detail that when Mary shows up, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, who's John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And then it tells us about Mary's prayer when Mary exclaims out of joy for the Lord. And you wonder, how in the world did Luke know all of this? And the answer is this, is because Luke talked to Zechariah, and Luke went and had a conversation with Elizabeth, and Luke went and asked Mary what this is like. There is no other way that he would know the intimacy of these conversations without going to these places, interviewing these people, and having these conversations, and telling us details that no one else told us. There's something incredibly unique about the gospel and the portrait that Luke is giving us. And when you start to think about the amount of work this was and the amount of details that were given and the attention to all the specifics, you realize that this is Luke's life's work. That what we hold in our hand as you hold this book is is Luke who had given himself in his entire life to put together this account of the life of Jesus that we might have this orderly account From beginning to end, knowing it was fully investigated, overseen by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke gave his life to give us this. The question you you want to ask is, well, why, Luke? Why, Why did you feel that it was that important to give your life to this great task? And he answers it for us in verse 4, and this is where it becomes more practical to us. It says in verse 3, it it seemed good to me, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the key word, circle this, that. Here's the reason. I gave my life for this so that you might have an orderly account that you may have certainty 
the most important word in these four verses, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now remember Theophilus, who had the gospel, but he didn't have certainty. He knew the stories, but he still felt insecure. He had heard all of the ministry and life of Jesus, but he did not have a stable faith. And so Luke says, I'm writing that you might have certainty. And that word certainty is a word that means security, safety, stability. It's only used two times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter 5, verse 23, when some of the apostles were put into prison, and yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were delivered from prison, and the prison guards came and said, how did this happen? To which they responded, it doesn't make any sense because the prison was locked in all security, gates, guards, multiple levels, absolute, complete security. This word is used again in 1 Thessalonians 5 when it talks about the return of Jesus Christ. It says Jesus will come and bring destruction when everyone is saying to themselves, there is peace and security. So you take those two usages together and what this word means is both the reality of security and an inner sense of security. It means absolutely being secure and not only being secure, but sensing in your heart that you are secure. What that tells us is this, is that Luke is writing to Theophilus and all of us who would read this book and study this book, who have a knowledge of Jesus Christ so that that knowledge might give us a security and a stability and an immovable and unshakable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke did not write this that we might have in another count of the story. All kinds of people had told this story. His goal was not information. His goal was transformation that concerned a little bit anxious or worried or insecure believers through the knowledge of Jesus Christ might find themselves deeply rooted and stable with an immovable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Luke's as I came to that understanding, as I was looking at that word certainty and thinking about that the whole purpose of this book is that we might have this stable, confident, assured, unshakable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just wondered why, why does that matter so much? I thought about Philippians 1, verses 27 following, my favorite passage of scripture about what it means to be a part of a church where it says that God has gathered us, that we might strive together for the gospel, that we might suffer together for the gospel. And it says this, that we might stand together for the gospel. A military word, which means that we take our ground and we stand it and we don't let anybody come and take us down. And I'm reminded that in order for us to be a faithful church, we must not only advance the gospel, we must stand on the truths of the gospel, even if no one else does. That we must be a church filled with stable believers, deeply rooted and grounded in the understanding of the gospel, believing that everything God says matters, no matter how much time goes past. God said it, we believe it, and we stand in confidence in the truth of God's word. We need to be a people who know how to stand. But then I thought even more personally and practically. I thought about how Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount. He ends with an invitation, as we do each week here. As we hear the word of God, Jesus then uh, pleads with them to respond and listen to these words that Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock is is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the one on whom we build our lives. And what this says is if we will understand and hear and respond to the word of God, and we will find ourselves settled on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that when the winds come, we will be able to withstand them. I don't know about you, but every moment of the day, I feel the wind blowing. Every moment of the day. I feel the wind of insecurity. I feel the wind of temptation. I feel the wind of suffering, the wind of disappointment. I feel the wind of anxiety and the wind of worry that chokes out my joy and chokes out my faith. I often feel the wind of despair that seems to come upon me. I feel the wind of the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world and the cultural pressures and the desire to make a name for myself instead of a name for Jesus Christ. I feel the wind of a desire for safety and a desire for ease. As we sang that song a moment ago, follow you anywhere, I actually stopped singing and was feeling the wind of ease, of wondering if I actually believe that. That God, wherever you lead me, I'll go. That I've never been happier in my entire life. I've never loved living in a place and pastoring a place like I have right now. And then I'm singing, Lord, whatever it costs me, I'll follow you anywhere. And as those words are coming to mouth, I'm feeling the wind of ease. And the wind of a desire to just settle in. And whether you feel it or not, there is never a moment of your life as a believer that the wind is not blowing. And it's different for all of us. Some of us, it's the constant wind of anxiety and worry. For others, it's cultural pressures and popularity. For others, it's a desire for success. Whatever it may be, the wind never stops blowing. And it is a fleshly, demonic wind that is blowing with the goal of taking your faith and your family and your future and crumbling every bit of it. The wind never stops blowing. And the question is, how are we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ going to stand at the moment when you leave this church today and the wind of despair comes upon you or the wind of anxiety or the wind of worry or the wind of popularity and it begins to choke out the joy that is yours. It begins to make you insecure about who you are as a believer. The wind of temptation is going to sweep over you sometime this afternoon and the only way we will make it and stand in the midst of all of those demonic cultural winds is if we are rooted and grounded in the knowledge of Jesus Christ that makes us stable. And that's why Luke gave us this book. That we, might, that, we might, that we might consume it and that we might see Jesus in it and we might see that he is glorious and he is better and we might find that this is not only a story, we might find our place in this story and we might feel that we are a part of what God is doing and that we might have our lives revolutionized by an awareness of who Jesus is and who I am in him. And as a result, we will be a church filled with people who know how to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you this morning, 
how are you withstanding the winds? Are the winds winning in your life? Like you feel as if even this week that you have been tossed to and fro, you're emotionally like this and like this and you're happy and you're sad and all of it because the winds have come at you and you're not withstanding them. Listen, that will never change, but let me tell you what can change. What can change is you for the very first time getting into a right relationship with Jesus Christ where you call upon the name of the Lord, you ask him to save you and you set your feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. That can change. And what can also change is you even having been a believer and received Christ, saying to the Lord, Lord, I need you desperately to increase my faith, strengthen my faith, make me deeply rooted in the things of the Lord. I'm going to give myself more than ever to the knowledge of Jesus Christ because I want to stand. The winds will not change, but your confidence can increase. And I pray that it would by God's grace. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.